0: Father, we come before you knowing that you have, you have seen the opposition. And not only for my wife, not only for the people in the church, but the people on the team who are going, Lord. There have been all kinds of things going on from the administrator having gallbladder surgery to a hysterectomy to all kinds of problems that are arising. And Father, we recognize that the enemy is never sleeping. He never slacks. And so, We desire, Lord, with the help of your spirit, to stand firm in the faith, to not be discouraged, to always be looking towards you, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would not fall into despair at any time, but Lord, that we would continue to pray for those who are in need of your assistance, those who need a a touch, a healing touch, or a word of encouragement. All of these things, Lord, are necessary as we seek to wage war against the enemy and win souls for you. And Father, we understand there are going to be people who are going to get saved over in Africa, and they will be ushered into the kingdom, and we pray for their health and well-being as well, spiritually speaking, first and foremost. For Father, we understand that the enemy would want to come along and take away the word that has been implanted in their heart, and we pray that you would stand, send your angels and protect against that from taking place. I thank you, Father. Mm -hmm. and heavenly father i I just want to say thank you for the opportunities that you provide for us you give us the chance to be your ambassadors help us father to speak a word that is fit for the time give us the verses in our mind that we can communicate to others for it is your word that is powerful and effective and not ours so, Lord, we ask for your blessing, not only on the trip, not only on the people in the church here and all who have been involved uh, with making preparation for this, uh, this missions trip, but, Father, we also pray that you would bless our service today, that you would be in the midst here, that your Holy Spirit would be teaching and guiding and ministering to all of us as we seek to wait on you and do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we are currently in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 4 and getting into chapter 5 today. And just by way of review, since we've taken a couple of weeks out, we've done Palm Sunday and we've done the Easter Sunday. We've gone through all of that. I just wanted to remind you of the story of how God became man and how it all began. The ministry of Jesus, not the creation. We don't want to go back that far, but just Jesus' first advent here to the planet earth as a human being remember that he was born here in the gospel of matthew and it gave us his lineage and his ancestry the announcement and the recognition of his arrival as i told you a few weeks ago the angels the magi and john the baptist and all of that being set up the baptism of jesus his initiation his temptation that he suffered under the hand of satan himself and the place where he lived and ministered, we're going to look at today in the selection of the first disciples and the type and scope of his ministry. We want to get into that, so we're going to pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 4 here. This is where Jesus lived during his ministry. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went down and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Nephtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Now, this is really taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land, the shadow of death. A light has dawned. So this is the placement of Jesus' ministry. Now, if you wanted to go and start a ministry somewhere, where would you go? Would you go to a city bustling with individuals? Would you go somewhere up in Idaho or around the Arctic Circle where a village has about... 75 people or maybe a thousand people total would you minister in a place like that well what jesus did in the area of the decapolis in the area surrounding the sea of galilee you had these several villages if you were to go there today and you were going to look at the little village of capernaum it is nothing to look at it is just a few buildings there the catholic church put up this thing that looks like a flying saucer over a house that they believe to be peter's house Now, how did they know if it was Peter's house? They don't. But you can get in this flying saucer and you can look down into the area that is supposed to be Peter's house right there. But the village itself, it just has a few structures. There's really nothing there except a couple of gates and posts and things like that. And if you were to head west around the area of Nephtali and um, going towards the Mediterranean Sea, and by the way, this is 600 feet below sea level, approximately 600 feet below sea level. It is the largest freshwater lake below sea level. And it's really a beautiful lake, especially when you get down towards the south end. You have the Jordan River there. There's a baptismal that was placed in there. I think Chuck Smith had something to do with that. Where thousands of people every year go down and they get baptized in the Jordan River. And all along the west side, you have the city of Tiberias. And Tiberius is a bustling city. It is the most modern city. And by the way, the lake, uh, the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee there, it has also been known as the uh, Sea of Tiberias uh, because of the emperor. It was named after him. But that is the modern-day city there. And we have stayed right on the lake. And you can look out, and that water is just crystal clear. When you look at it, I remember standing on a balcony there and I could look over and it'd get to about 10 or 15 feet of the water and you'd see these huge fish that would just be in the water. And the Sea of Galilee is packed with fish. Now it's only about 84 feet deep at its deepest point. And there is this one mound that's in there they think it's kind of interesting. It was man-made and it was when the Sea of Galilee was a little lower and and that was Jesus' ministry was that area with all these little villages around there and he would go towards the west, towards Nazareth and up in that area and that's up a hill. If, if you went and looked at the Sea of Galilee at the south end, you look north, there's this slope that goes way up and it would get this problem like Jesus, remember he was on the uh, Sea of Galilee and the winds came up and the boat was tossed and they thought they were going to die and the disciples went to Jesus say, what are you doing sleeping don't you care if we're going to die and he goes oh you guys a little faith and he rebukes the wind and it stopped well the wind comes down from the north and it will blow across that sea and you can get five to ten foot seas on this little lake The way that this wind blows. And if you go farther, you can see Mount Hermon in the distance. And it's snow-capped. And up towards the north is the city of Dan. And you have the Golan Heights there. And the way that it's planted now, there are avocado groves. It is just beautiful up there. And they have uh, kibbutz or kibbutzim up there. That's where the Jews get together in a collective. And so today, when you look at it, you go, wow, this is fantastic. Back then, it was just a bunch of fishing villages around. And so the population at the time, it wasn't very great. There were a few thousand around the lake and it could easily support the life that lived there around the lake. But then when Jesus shows up, that dramatically changes. So this was Jesus's place of residence, Capernaum. And when he was there, it was his quote unquote final destination for his ministry. And ultimately he would go down to Jerusalem to be crucified down there. Now this particular lake, as I said, it's called Lake Tiberius, or Lake of Gennesaret or Sea of Chinnereth, or Kinnereth in Numbers chapter 34, verse 11, Joshua 13, 27. It goes all the way back. This this is a well-known lake in the area. The Babylonian Talmud talks about it as well as Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian. The Sea of Genesar is what it was called back then. And, and so when you look at it in the ancient text. It is there. It is a vibrant uh, little uh, bunch of towns that are there, and it's fed by these springs. Now, if you go, if you get a chance to go to Israel, you'll go up by the city of Dan. That's one. Then there's Caesarea Philippi, and they say underneath the lake there are also springs that come out. Now, uh, it's Caesarea Philippi, and I think it's up by the city of Dan, they will take you to where the water just comes out of the ground. it's just like. Oh, it's not a hole, it's just rocks. And the water comes out at 5,000 gallons a second. And you're going, how is that possible? 5,000 gallons a second. And at Caesarea Philippi, they've channeled it and they've, they've made some gardens and rock channels and where the water goes and they've made it a virtual paradise. But God decided that's where He is going to have His ministry and there's plenty of water there and it can irrigate the entire Jordan Valley going all the way down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is approximately 1,400 feet below sea level. And so the main part of Israel is all below sea level. And if you go down to the Dead Sea today, by the way, do you know why the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea? It's because the water from the Jordan River, it flows down and it goes to the Sea of Galilee, from there, it goes down into the Jordan Valley, and that's where Jesus would have gotten baptized in there. Then it goes into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead because there's no outlet. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. But the Dead Sea, it's dead. Nothing lives in there. The water there, it is so salty. You would—you get a drop in your tongue and you just go, Egh! if you drank it, you would die. But people get in it, and they float. And I mean, you can float like a cork in that. I I, I remember being in it with Patty, and literally, I would be in the water, and the water would only be at my waist. I kid you not. And I'm going, this is weird. You know, normally you're in a pool, and the water comes up to your neck. It, but it's not like that. You get in the sea, of, uh, the Dead Sea down there, and it is so buoyant. There's so many chemicals in there. It's almost like walking. You're, you're walking through the water. It is so thick. It's almost like maple syrup when it's real hot. And you're just going through there. And the bottom of it, it's crystalline. It, it's not like dirt, but it's crystalline. And it's the most unusual thing. But the water doesn't flow out. Now, if the water is, say, the Word of God, washing yourselves with the water of the Word of God, And that water comes into us and we're like the Sea of Galilee, then it flows out, right? But if you're the Dead Sea, the water just goes in and you do nothing with it. What happens to you? You become like the Dead Sea. And so Jesus decided to be up at the Sea of Galilee and not down by Jericho and the Dead Sea. He wanted what the Father was giving to him, he gave to the people and life was. Came to those people down there. So, this is why he was partially in that area. So, it's 33 miles around, 84 feet deep. Like I said, it's actually 695 feet below sea level. And the Jordan River flows in there, and you have these other springs that feed it. And so, there's a constant flow of water going through that. Now, this village is where uh, Jesus stayed, Capernaum, and it was the home to Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, or Levi, the tax collector, who wrote this particular gospel. And there is a synagogue there. If you go there today, you'll see the synagogue, and you'll have this black basalt stone foundation and you see that foundation you go wow okay that's pretty interesting because that's the stone that's in the area right now it's covered with a white stone it looks like it may be a sandstone it's kind of polished and they have some columns sitting there but it's not completely built over Uh, when we went to israel patty would ask me now is this authentic you know like peter's house i don't think that was authentic but is this synagogue authentic and i said yes Jesus was standing here in this synagogue. And it would have been on the black basalt uh, floor that was in there. There may have been a mosaic or something on there. But he was definitely in that building. And so whenever we would go through Israel, it would be like, okay, is this authentic? Is this the exact place? Is this what happened in this particular point in history? And it's fun to kind of pick those places. But to know that Jesus was there, you, you get this funny sense about you well i want to walk where jesus walked you know and so i, I want to say, i wonder if you stood right here and if i could travel back in time would i be right there well he was he was in capernaum right there in that synagogue and he was on several sabbaths he was going in there and he would instruct the people as well he would have a word for the people and they would be encouraged by him so he taught them in luke chapter 4 verse 31 it says after almost being thrown off a cliff in Nazareth for reading Isaiah chapter 61. In the synagogue of that city, he went to Capernaum and on the Sabbath began to teach the people and they were amazed. So he was like the the guest speaker that came on in and in that same synagogue, there was a demon-possessed man. And Jesus cast out the demon inside that synagogue. So when you're there, you go, I wonder where that demon guy was. You know, was he over here in the corner? Who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? You know, just carrying on whatever he was doing. And Jesus rebuked him, cast out the demon. And so you're right there in that section. But that's what Jesus did with these people. And when the people saw it, imagine somebody that is demon-possessed, like in a church like this, and they're maybe being thrown on the ground or they're saying things that are just blasphemous and somebody in here who has the gift of the sermon and they pray for the demon to come out comes out what would you think cool is that what you think you know you would be amazing oh wow what what what, that was strange man that was weird you see that hey cephas did you catch this over here this is kind of strange And so Jesus was doing these miracles, and also he would heal on the Sabbath. You know, a hand that was all shriveled up. It would come out, and it would just be completely whole. And what would you think? Oh, cool. No, you'd be like, this is awesome. I'm going next Sunday. Well, back then it would have been Saturday. I'm going to be there. Is there a midweek? I need to go to a midweek. You know. And so that's what they would start thinking. And because of that, they say that the population that came to see Jesus swelled anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000 people came to that little village. And how many did Jesus heal? All of them. Imagine going through the stadium. Uh, It used to be Jack Murphy, then it was Qualcomm, now it's SDCCU, and who knows what it's going to be in the future. But you go down to that stadium, hold 60,000 plus people. Imagine all of them. Or half of them are sick. Some of them missing legs. Some have eyes gone or blind or deaf. And he goes through and heals each one of them. Probably touching each one of them. He's probably walking through the crowds with his hands out. Just touching each one. Or they're reaching out to him, touching him. And every single day. How many hours could he do that in one day? And then once you find out. What do you do? You go back to your town. Hey, you got to go down there to Capernaum. Do you know this guy Jesus. We think he's a prophet. He's healing everybody. And then you see the throngs of people coming over the mountains, the passageways that come down or, or coming up the Sea of Galilee around Tiberius and coming around to see him. And Jesus was just healing them all. This was his ministry. And so we know that he also probably stayed at Peter's house. This is the house where Simon Peter's. Uh, mother-in-law she got healed and after he healed her she got up and waited on him and many were healed it says when the sun was setting many were brought to him and he healed them so how late do you think he was up midnight one o'clock all of these people coming in and he's healing them and by the end of the night do you think he was exhausted he was probably spent that's why he would get away and be alone and spend time with the father now here we have the calling of the first disciples. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets And followed him. After going on from there, he saw two of the brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in boats with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boats and their father and followed them. So this is, we have the information that they were called, but there's a little more to it. If you have your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 5. And Luke records a little bit more of this commentary of how these guys got called. Luke chapter 5, in verse 1. So Peter and Andrew are here. It says in verse 1, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, same as Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. such a whiner, you know, going on here. Just say so? When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at his knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. They had just caught more fish than they had probably caught in the previous two to five years in one catch. Now, those boats aren't small. Those boats, depending on how they were doing their fishing, the boat could have been 40 feet from side to side in this room. Imagine the boat being so full of fish that it begins to sink. How many fish is that? tons of fish and they're pulling it all in and they're going, we're in the money. We're in the You know, they they just got this, they got this huge catch and they're going to make all kinds of money off of it and then Jesus says, ah, leave it. Come follow me. You know, what about us? You win the lottery. No, I hope you're not playing the lottery. You know, it's not too wise, but you know, if you do play the lottery and you know, you win the lottery and you get all this money and you're going, Money. Money, and you're throwing it up in the air and god comes along and says leave it all <laughs> what you want me to leave all of that that's what you want me to do goes, yeah I'll, I'll make you fishers of men instead of fishing for dollars you'll be able to be such an influence and god calls us to that sometimes i remember going down to mexico where we're down there and we help out with mexico caravan ministries there was a guy that was making six figures down there And God called him to the mission field. His dad was handing him. goes, you know, the Lord's calling you. You need to go. And so he got rid of this accounting job making six figures. And he learned how to skin animals. And he actually wrote a Bible in another language that previously didn't have any written language. Evangelized a tribe down in New Guinea. And before he left, his boss said, look, if you stay, I, I think it was, I'll double your salary right before he's supposed to go so what would you do okay i'm in the money i'm staying here i'm not gonna go do the ministry down there but he did and because of that a whole people group got evangelized not everybody converted or accepted christ but there were certainly a lot of them and there's a vibrant christian community there today and so we want to be open to that if god just calls us as go we need to say okay where don't worry i'll tell you later Just go. And so you go, then he starts blessing. Now, are there going to be problems? Yeah, there are going to be problems. Uh, Peter, crucified upside down. Uh, John didn't get crucified, but the rest of them, they were killed in some way, shape or form. And, And so these two disciples were called, these were the first disciples, but there's also the first dictate, the first command, the first directive, the first decree, the first prescription that he gave. And it was, repent, Right Now, I've given you this before. What is repentance? Change of mind? Change of heart? Change of action or direction? Let me give you some verses to go along with this. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is after verse 1 that says, Off your bodies is a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. This is our reasonable service. Then he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, our mind is supposed to change in what it thinks. We think things are good. Like, you take a child, and a child's mind is full of foolishness, right? What does the Bible say is necessary to get rid of the foolishness of a child? Do you guys know? I think I heard it. The rod of correction. The rod of correction. You give a rod of correction to a child that's full of foolishness; it drives the foolishness from the child. Now, this is one case where I didn't use the rod of correction on one of my daughters. She got her own correction for this. At the time, we had a a stove, and the stove had a red burner on it. You know, you, you turn that thing on, and it's glowing. It's just hot. And she's standing right next to the stove looking at it like that. And we say, don't touch. What did she do? As soon as we turned away, she goes, (laughs) right, her whole hand right on it. Blood curdling scream comes out. What, Justin? And she goes, what? And you see these blister lines coming up with the coil that's on there. We're just freaking out. Oh, bad parents. We are bad parents. And looking at that, get the butter, get the ice, you know, put something on it. And she is just crying her eyes out. It was, And, and that was when she was 23. But... It went... <laughs> No, I think she was about four years old. And she, she, it just looked inviting for her. But it was foolish for her to do that. And all children are like that. They're just foolish. They have, no idea what can befall them and so this mind this foolishness that we have the ways of the world and the world thinks that things are wise and god says no those are foolishness and we think that things of the world are foolish and god says no they're wise this is the wise things or the things of christ are foolish but we say no they're wise and so our mind has to be changed if we don't change our mind we will continue in the pattern of foolishness If we continue in the pattern of foolishness, it leads to our destruction. So God says, get the word of God in you, listen to the word of God, and that will assist you in driving away the foolishness. Then there's the change of heart. Now, that change of heart can be related to understanding which is based in feelings or emotion. When you come to grips with the the gravity of our sin, that we all possess, it should drive us to the cross. When, If you've never said, God, show me my sin. You better put your seatbelt on. You better get on your knees because He will show you your sin. When that happens, the Holy Spirit moves in a, a tender fashion. He doesn't condemn, but He shows us how wicked we actually are. And it just give Him get him a chance to reveal your driving habits, how you speak to each other, you know, and, and I'm reminded of that constantly. i say like, Lord, forgive me. I need your mercy. I need your grace to get through this. And so it will bring about a broken and contrite heart. <clears throat> that is Psalm 51, verse 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that's where he wants us. He wants us in that place of reaching out to him in brokenness so he can lift us up. If we go out saying, well, I can do this, I can get this right. No, we can't. We can't do it or perfect the flesh. And so God says, just fall on the rock and be broken. And then it's a change of action. There are several different actions that we can change. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. It also says in Ephesians 4.17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. So the Gentiles, they do live for themselves. Or the pagans, they live for themselves. God says, take yourself, put yourself on the cross with Christ, crucify the self we don't like to crucify the self we like to pamper the self we like to go spend for and nothing wrong with massages but we like to spend for massages we like to spend for all the niceties we want the new clothes we want the nice house we want the me 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 i i i and god says no live for me if you live for me he says i'll give you everything but just right now give up everything or be willing To give up everything. And if he calls us to give up anything at all, we just say, okay, Lord, I'm going to need some help with this one, but I'll give it up for you. So it's a change of mind, change of heart, change of action. He calls the first disciples. We have the context of that. But also, when you look at Peter, was he zealous for the Lord? And, okay, let's do this. Put the fish to the side. See you, Dad. And he starts taking off. Is that what he does? Or does he say... Lord, leave me. I'm a sinner. And he goes, Ah, don't worry, don't be afraid, Peter. I'll make you fisherman. Was he reluctant? What about Moses, the greatest leader in the Old Testament, besides John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament times. And so you have Moses, and what did he say? Lord, I can't speak. Lord, send somebody else. I don't want to do it. And the Lord showed up and was going to kill him, right? And his wife, Zipporah, saved him from that. Reluctant leaders. But look what they did, the things that they accomplished. And they were both blow Moses, a murderer. He committed murder, right? Peter, what did he do? denied Christ. You know, and then he had to be rebuked by Paul, the Apostle Paul, after he's an apostle trying to live like the, the Gentiles but commanding others to live like the Jews, he got it all wrong. You know, he wasn't doing so well for the first pope, was he? He, he was just making mistakes left and right. And, and so, that was a little bit of humor there on the first pope. But he was reluctant to follow Jesus. Moses was reluctant. He said, send somebody else. And also Gideon. Remember Gideon? Lord, give me a sign. Well, one sign's not good enough. Give me another sign. I want another one. Remember the fleece, the dew on the ground, and the dew and the fleece. And so he's very reluctant. But God wants us to be wholehearted, zealous for him. Now, zealous with knowledge. If you're zealous without knowledge, scripture says it's not good. So you have to have the knowledge, and the change of mind with repentance, you'll get that knowledge, and then you can act appropriately. It's kind of, give you an example of this. Where I was going to church uh, when, before we came here, there was a church down the street. I won't say what church it is. It's still there. But I remember coming out of church, going down El Cajon Boulevard, and looking over to this other church as we're leaving. And there's all these women on El Cajon Boulevard with big signs they're carrying very big signs. They're probably three feet by five feet. Or, and they're out there holding these. And they're walking up and down the sidewalks out in front of this church. And the signs read, no more prostitutes on El Cajon Boulevard. Walking up and down. Now, what do you think Jesus would have done if he was out there? He would have got them, talked to them, given them the gospel, taken care of their needs, and ministered to them. But because somebody has not taught them or they're lacking knowledge, they decided to condemn the prostitutes, not in my neighborhood. And Jesus would not have done that. And so that's acting foolishly as far as being a witness to those who are out there. And by the way, when you're witnessing to somebody, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're given a reason for the hope that lies within, you don't have to convert every single person you come across. We're just supposed to be a witness. As a side note to this, I was talking to uh, Eric last week, and he, he uh, brought up a book, Tactics by Greg Kokel. And I, I remembered the name. I remembered Greg Kokel. He He's an excellent apologist. I don't necessarily agree with all of theology, but he is a brother in the Lord. And he wrote this book. And so I downloaded the audio book. I finished it, and I kept on obsessing on chapter three and going through it and how to be a witness. And he says, you know, I'm not interested necessarily in, in converting somebody right there, but I want to put a pebble in their shoe, is what he says. When there's a pebble in your shoe, can you... Not notice it? I I mean, every time you step on it, you go, what in the world is in my, or a little thorn in the sock? You know, did I get that thorn out? You put your sock back on, you go, what is in there? And it just bugs you. It's just in there. And that's what he talks about in that book. Now, the book is not for the brand new Christian. It is for somebody who's been a believer for a while, because he starts getting into some weeds a little bit. And you have to kind of know what's going on. But parts of the book are just so good. And I would recommend that book to you for you guys to get that. Thank you, Eric, for that. But we're supposed to be zealous for the Lord. In Colossians 3.23, it says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So with all your heart, you're supposed to Get out there and work for the Lord. Now, to illustrate this, and by the way, that can be precarious. That can be perilous working for the Lord. Let me give you an illustration of this. I was watching this little video of a a guy in a gym and he was buff. He was, he was a man. I mean, he had a chest that was like three feet thick and his muscles were medium sized pizzas on his arms and he got on this bench press. And he's underneath this bench press, and he's grabbing it. And you know the, the big weights, the 45-pounders that are on there? And the big bar? I, I don't know what that weighs anymore. It's 45 or 65 pounds. I'm usually in about a 10-pound bar now. But the, his were just, like, huge. And he had, like, five or six of those going across. So he lays down on the bench, and there's this guy over him like this. This guy looks like about six foot four. He's ready to pick this up on top of him. You help him up. And so the guy, he grips the bar. His fingers move. He grips it again. He pulls it back and forth. He's going to give it his all, right? He pushes it up, and you see his arms go like this. You know, he's holding it, and he comes down. He gets it down, and his chest comes up, and he goes to give it a push. And guess what happens? It slips out of his hands right onto his chest. And i that's what I said. When I saw it, I go, ah! I did it verbally. I mean, I'm watching that. I go, oh! It can be perilous following Christ. It can cost you your life if you do it. Now, that guy, I'm sure he's injured. I hope he he made it okay. But he gave it his all for something that will not last. If we give our all for something that will last, we get a reward, a great entry into heaven. But if we're so concerned about ourselves, I might get hurt. Yeah? You might get hurt following Christ. But that's what he calls us to do. And when he called these disciples to be zealous for him... They knew what they were getting into. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Yes, we can, Lord. And you will indeed drink that cup. And they were willing to go through the cup of suffering. And another person from the Old Testament who was zealous for God, Elijah. You know, in First Kings chapter 19, verse 13, it says, Then a voice said to him, What are you doing there, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And he was. He was very zealous. And his... Uh, His assistant, Elisha, after that, he was did twice the miracles and he was very zealous for the Lord as well. These men and women of old, they are our examples of how to give your full heart, mind, soul, and strength to the Lord. And this idea of being zealous for the Lord, when you look it up in the Greek, it means to have a warm feeling. So if you're zealous for the Lord, you are endeared towards him on what his will is, that you want to do his will. Now, you can also look at it as in a relationship between a husband and a wife. Uh, I'm zealous for you, which means I am warm towards you. I am agreeable towards you. And that's the way the Lord wants us towards him. Going on here, we have the ministry of Jesus' preaching teaching and healing. Jesus went, verse 23, throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Remember, it's every disease. News about him spread all over Syria and that's to the north. Lebanon and Syria are to the north. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. Now, I want to make you aware of something. There are bookends on Jesus' ministry here. You have 423, and it goes all the way to chapter 9, verse 35 and 36. And this is what it says. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he had saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So in between these two sections in Matthew, it describes Jesus' ministry. And remember what he did. He preached, he taught, and he healed every disease and sickness. That was the scope of his ministry. So for us as well, what what's the scope of our ministry? What is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be just like his We are supposed to teach. We are supposed to preach. And I would say, pray for healing. If you have the gift of healing, please go clear out Children's Hospital. Just walk in there. Clear out all of those kids in there. You cannot believe the amount of suffering you will relieve if you have that gift. Pray for them anyhow, even if you don't have the gift of healing. But this idea, that's how we're supposed to minister to those who are in the world. We're supposed to give our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, you know, sometimes in, in this book, Tactics, that I was going through, <clears throat> have you ever heard the phrase, love them into the kingdom? Greg Koukl says it's not possible. Whenever you bring, and I, I tend to believe this the way he explained it, when you bring something that is contrary to the flesh, and the word of God is contrary to the flesh, do you know what it's going to cause? It's going to cause friction. Friction can lead to an argument. But an argument doesn't have to be contentious. You can win people in an argument if you do it correctly. You can disagree about an issue, but you don't have to be disagreeable. And that's the whole idea of the tactics. You can give somebody a gospel by not preaching at them, but asking them questions. Do you really believe that? Well, help me clarify that. What exactly do you mean by that? And in the book, it tells you how to do all of that. And some of it, if you've been a Christian long enough, it's already secondhand. He just refines it inside the book there. And so we're supposed to go out, we're supposed to teach, we're supposed to preach, and we, I know how it is, we get afraid that we're going to offend somebody. Uh, when I, sometime in May, it looks like I'm going to be meeting with an imam, and uh, Omar that I've been telling you about, and somebody else who's a principal at an elementary school who speaks really good English, and we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about the Koran. And we're going to have disagreements, but it's certainly not going to be disagreeable. I, I, I just want to ask a bunch of questions, and usually if you ask the right questions, the folly of certain views, whether theirs or mine, will become evident. And so God wants us to open our mouths, and there may be disagreements, but we don't have to be disagreeable in the midst of that. So we have those bookends. Jesus wanted to let us know, through the writing of Matthew here, about the scope. It's hundreds of square miles that people are coming from to see him. And remember, thousands, probably tens of thousands were healed by him in his ministry. Now, I was going to go into the Sermon on the Mount here, but I'm running out of time rapidly. But I, I want you to do something. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5. Now, you might have to write this down to remember it. Look at Matthew chapter 5, and also, it's going to be the Beatitudes here. I want you to study the Beatitudes. I want you to look for a pattern in there, especially the way that it's given in Luke. There is a structure there in Luke, and there's also a structure here in Matthew. And it's called a chiastic structure. And the reason it's called chiastic structure, the chiastic structure, is because there's actually a structure in the wording that is there, that God put there. And there are many of them in Scripture. This is one of those things that you can tell that the Scripture is divine the way it's actually structured. Remember last week I told you, you can see God in the universe. Remember I told you, you can see God in nature. And I pulled out that prickly pear cactus and I told you, Christ is pure and he is white and yet he shed his blood. And I, I took it across that scale and you saw the white turn to crimson. And I also said that you guys are also a testimony. You are a witness. There's also a witness in the actual structure of the scripture it's not just the words it is as some of the Hebrew scholars would say it's the spaces between the words it's not just the words and their meaning but it's the spaces not only is it the spaces but it's the structure too and you look at all this you go it blows my mind man just like Raul Reese would say this, this idea that you see this stuff and you recognize this it's like Jesus and the testimony about him is hidden in plain sight do you get that We just don't always see it. We just don't always recognize it. So I want you to look at Matthew and Luke chapter 6 and discover what the chiastic structure is there. And the chiastic, it it comes from chi or uh, chi. It's an X. And that gives you some type of clue what is in the structure here and why God decided to do it like that? So let's pray. Father, we come before you. There's so many interesting things about your word and you fill us full of wisdom as we dive into it. We just pray, Lord, that it would take root and that it would produce fruit 160 or 30 times that which is sown in us. And we desire to be fully given to you, zealous for you like Peter eventually was, but not in the beginning But Lord, Elijah was, Hezekiah was, Paul, after he got saved, he was very zealous for you. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to abandon ourselves and live for you. Help us not to live as the Gentiles, but live in such a way that brings you glory. And we thank you for your word that guides and directs us. You have not left us as orphans in this life. And one final word, Lord, one final request. May you watch over this church. May you watch over the people in it. May you bring healing to those who need it. May you bring that word of encouragement. And until we are all reunited again, Lord, may you minister to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.